The country of India is the second most populous nation on earth. There are roughly one billion citizens of India. In terms of religious adherence, the vast majority of Indians are Hindus. There is a sizable population of Sikhs and Muslims. And then there's everyone else. Christians make up a tiny minority. But all that may have been quite different but for one or two men who might have been distinct for Jesus. Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, otherwise known as Mahatma Gandhi, was once identified by Time magazine as one of the most influential men of the past 1,000 years. I'd like to read from a children's biography about Gandhi. It says this, Gandhi's religious beliefs were the cornerstone of his political actions. He was a man of great wisdom and charm and completely selfless. His honesty, mildness and utter lack of vindictiveness even in the most trying situations, disarmed all those who met him. Above all, he was a great leader, a man with the rare ability to exact from his followers as high a standard of conduct as he showed in his own life and political dealings. In his autobiography, Gandhi wrote that as a student he'd become interested in the Christian message. He read the Gospels and resolved to visit a local church one Sunday and asked the minister for instruction to becoming a Christian. Upon entering, the usher quickly suggested that it would be better if he went to worship with his own people. Gandhi reasoned that if Christianity had the same caste system as Hinduism, he might as well remain a Hindu. It's hard to imagine a more tragic story. The young Gandhi, having read the Gospels and seeking to know more, in an initial contact with the church that can't have lasted much more than a minute, decided that there was no distinct difference in the message of Jesus. In today's passage from Philippians, Paul calls on the church to be distinctly different. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, you cry out to us to be distinct. Father God, you are distinct. We've sung songs this morning that proclaim just how different the gospel of Jesus Christ really is. We've sung a song this morning about standing before you, clothed in white, and you not seeing any sin in us. 
how much more distinct do we want to be? Heavenly Father, please by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds to the leading of your word this morning. Heavenly Father, keep me faithful that we may walk away from here this morning being distinctive, following your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Paul is writing to his dear friends in the church at Philippi. And without doubt, he looks forward to the possibility of coming to be with them. It is hard not to see the great affection that he has for his friends. But Paul has a vision that extends well past a potential visit. He has a twofold view for the church in Philippi. First, he wants them to continue in obedience. Let's look at it in verses 15 and 16. He says this, So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe, as you hold out, or we could say hold on to, the word of life. Paul's passion for the church is that it be distinctly different from its surroundings. In the eyes of the world around them, the Philippians must be utterly sincere, pure and beyond reproach. The picture is vivid. Christians must stand out like stars against the blackness of space. For to be called children of God is not only a privilege, but carries a responsibility to be distinct. The second part of Paul's view of the ch- for the church is he's looking forward. He's looking forward to heaven. And he wants to be able to boast before the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at 15 and 16 again. So that you may be, become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour for nothing. Now this is an idea that Paul has used before. If we turned over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, and don't go there. Paul says this to the church in Thessalonica, For what is our hope, our joy? Or the crown in which we glory, 
in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Paul longs for that day in heaven when he stands before the risen Lord Jesus and he looks around him and he says, this is what it's about. These are my friends. This is what I ran and laboured for. Paul has a view of eternity. You see, we need to remember that this letter is being written from within a Roman prison. Last week, we saw how Paul used the example of the humility and obedience of Jesus in a call for church unity. But Paul's joy is much deeper than his immediate degrading circumstances. What we are seeing is the brilliance of the glory of the risen Lord illuminating Paul's thoughts. However, Paul's care for the infant church doesn't allow him to be complacent in his expectation of this heavenly meeting. He's up front in saying that obedience is necessary for their salvation. Indeed, he's actually picking up on that obedience we heard about last week of Jesus. And he calls, calls on his friends to obey, just as they did when he was with them. He says to the Philippians to continue to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Paul is not arguing here for salvation by works. The very use of the word salvation impresses the point that the Philippians, and indeed us, need to be saved. And they and us are powerless to effect our own salvation. The idea that Paul is conveying here is that of bringing to completion. And in the next verse, we see that God is at work bringing about actions that conform to his good purpose. Verse 13, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And what's his purpose? To save. To save. You see, God wants that meeting in heaven with Paul and Paul boasting. He wants to save. We're up to point three on the outline. Now, it may seem at this point that the subject matter of the letter changes as Paul turns his attention to his plans for his colleagues, Timothy and Epaphroditus. But in reality, there is no change because the underlying concern remains, and that is the future of the Philippian church. Paul's manner of addressing the issue takes a different approach through the proposed dispatch of the two men, who Paul knows will be a benefit to the Philippians. Paul understands the value of sending trusted friends to Philippi. Paul is certain 
that Timothy will be an encouragement and a help to the church. He also knows that he can rely on Timothy to place the gospel first in all his dealings. Essentially, Paul is saying, I am sending you the best I have. Timothy is completely reliable. I know because he and I have worked side by side. I have seen the work he has done for the Lord. I have taught him and I am well pleased with his efforts. If you go down to verse 21, you see Paul making this observation. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Timothy, however, according to Paul, bucks that trend. He puts the gospel first. And that makes him an ideal person to send as a visitor to Philippi. There is, of course, a question that's begging to be asked here. What should we be seeing in this example of Timothy? More of that in a minute. Now, there's no doubt that Paul had been greatly encouraged when his brothers and sisters in Philippi had sent one of their number with gifts and a commission to tend to Paul's needs while he was in prison. This person was Epaphroditus. This is the only place in the New Testament that he appears, and therefore we don't know an awful lot about him. But Paul affectionately refers to him as his brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier. Paul is clearly appreciative of the work that Epaphroditus has done. But he's also very concerned for his welfare. And so he writes to the church that he's decided to send him home. We are told that Epaphroditus became very ill, almost to the point of death. But Paul acknowledges that by God's hand, he was saved. of God's mercy towards Epaphroditus, but also towards Paul. The death of this dear brother would have been a bitter blow for the apostle. Coping with the death of a dear friend amidst the misery of a Roman prison would have been sorrow upon sorrow. Paul. So, thankful for healing and concern for both Epaphroditus and the church, Paul writes to say that he's sending him home. Paul adds that he is keen for the Philippians to welcome him as the soldier and servant he has been. See, Paul's desire is that the church at Philippi see Epaphroditus as Paul has seen him. Paul's instruction to them is that they should welcome him home and honour him because Epaphroditus was prepared to risk everything, even his life, to complete the task 
that the church in Philippi had given him. Thinking back to last week, does any of this sound familiar? Again, is there not a big question directed towards us arising out of the example of Epaphroditus? We're up to point four on the outline. So what are we to make of all this nearly 2,000 years after Paul wrote this letter? Clearly, Paul was writing an open pastoral letter to a specific church at a particular time. And now, as we read over the shoulder of the Philippians, is there a message for us? The answer lies in Paul's description of the Philippians shining like stars in the universe. On any clear night, it's very difficult not to notice the myriad of stars that shine against the black expanse of the universe. My friends, what are we like in morning church? Do we stand out against the blackness of a crooked and depraved generation? Are we recognisably different from our surroundings because we follow the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or are we much less brilliant, perhaps a dark shade of grey against black that takes diligent searching to detect? What should this picture of stars shining in the universe look like for us, a group of generally ordinary folk who've gathered here this morning? The answer seems to lie in the examples of Paul, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And the answer seems to be, whatever you are doing for the gospel, no matter how small or large, keep on doing it. If you're sharing the gospel with someone at the moment, don't stop. If we go back to chapter 1, verse 13, we see that Paul is able to say that as a result of his proclamation of the gospel, the whole palace knows that he is in chains for the gospel. If you cleaned the toilets for the DPC church family this week, thank you. It's not a lot different to what Epaphroditus was doing. He simply answered the call to care for a brother in Christ. If you are growing in Christian maturity, then keep on growing. Work at contributing to our church family. Work at presenting Christ to everyone and presenting everyone mature in Christ. Develop a reputation like Timothy. 
A week or so ago, I became quite angry. I'm not sure you should confess that sort of thing, but I became quite angry as I listened to a radio interview with John Spong, the American clergyman, in which he proclaimed some of his exceptional views about Christianity and the Bible. But as I prepared this talk, one thing seemed quite clear. Spong gets a lot of press for his wacky ideas. However, when all else is said and done, Spong and those who adhere to his views are indistinct in the soup that is the world's view. And he seems quite content with that. Paul says, continue to obey so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold on to the word of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that you raised up men like Paul to write these words even so long ago. But you knew they would encourage your church today. Heavenly Father, as we leave this place today, we would ask that your Holy Spirit would dwell within us, driving us on to be distinct, to stand out, and to stand out because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.